another series and the final one of Notre Dame International Security Center's Students Talk Security Podcast. My name is Andrew Chiraki. I am a junior political science major, and I'm joined here today by an esteemed expert in the field of international relations, Joseph Parent. Professor Parent's a well-regarded writer and lecturer. He actually received his PhD from Columbia University and came to Notre Dame after teaching at Miami. He is currently the Associate Professor of Political Science and Associate Director of the Notre Dame International Security Center. He teaches international relations theory here, security studies, grand strategy, and foreign policy. But most importantly, some little trivia about him, he is a lifelong Notre Dame fan and even attended the football game where the movie Rudy was filmed. Some tidbits for our listeners. And actually, even more importantly, he's the published author or co-author of many important contributions, including American Conspiracy Theories, Uniting States, and most recently, Twilight of the Titans. Welcome, Professor Parent. Thanks for having me on, Andrew. It is an absolute pleasure. And I want to start right away um, to make sure our listeners understand what an incredible resource you are for understanding contemporary events. Let's dive into parentism, which is a term I've invented for, for your collection of unique views. And let's use uh, Twilight of the Titans for an example. So if you go on Amazon, it has uh, five stars currently. And your newest book has been described as a bold new perspective. And uh, Christopher Lane of Texas A&M called it specifically an incredible contribution to literature and grand strategies of great powers. So for those who haven't gotten to the book yet, what do we need to know? What are you saying in this book? Well, I think the main takeaway point, Andrew, is that... Um we're addressing how great powers deal with decline, and the answer is fairly well, and they contract their interests to fit their capabilities and broadly avoid war. So I think the conventional wisdom out there is that great power transitions lead to war, and we're saying if you look at the data, it doesn't. Interesting. So would you describe our country right now as in a state of decline? The United States is losing its relative power, but that is different than the United States is powerless or falling quickly. I think it's important to talk about the United States as losing some of its share to China, which is rising quickly, but that China has a lot of major problems. The United States is still quite strong, and much of China's gains has come at Europe's expense, not the United States. But we shouldn't kid ourselves about the, the trends. They are not uh, friendly to American power. Okay, and I'm going to use a phrase to describe your philosophy, and you tell me candidly, without, without holding back, if you think it's an accurate description. So I would call your view of America's place in the world as an agreement with America first. The idea that we need to retrench, we need to pull back, we need to start sounding the alarm about where America is in the world and where other people are. Is this a fair accusation of your views? Well, in some ways perhaps, but I... America First comes with a lot of present baggage, a lot of historical baggage, neither of which I want. Um, we think the United States has to refit and refuel and reorganize and revamp its institutions to serve both Americans and our, our allies abroad in order to maintain leadership. So is that serving Americans first? First among equals, perhaps. Interesting. Okay. And now I want to make it more contemporary. There's a couple different hotspots around the world that have been in the news very recently. And I want to use these as opportunities to explore your views and, and see if you would do the same thing in each situation and how your philosophy tells us we should revamp ourselves in each one. So first, Saudi Arabia. It's been the talk of the town. Everyone has been Googling how to pronounce uh, the prince's name. It, it's absolutely the topic of every Jeopardy show right now. 
And uh, Rosemary Kalanick, one of Notre Dame's own professors, actually just published an article on November 29th in the National Interest that the Saudis have been great partners um, in, the, in the past, but rather than an asset today, it's now a liability, and that we should really think about winding down our cooperation with Saudi Arabia. So to you, does revamping America, is this an opportunity for us to stop cooperating with Saudi Arabia? Is it time to let go of this foreign entanglement? Um, I think that's a bit strong, but I would say that um, my co-author Paul McDonald and I are very clear that the United States needs to reassess its commitments abroad and that most of our commitments, our major commitments, should be in Asia, not in the Middle East and Europe. That that's what, the area that needs our help the most and we should prioritize better. Uh, I think the United States and the Saudis will have some sort of alignment um, just out of sheer self-interest, but that um, the state of Saudi Arabia has been doing a number of things that the United States cannot condone and they need to pay a price for. And it's interesting you say pay a price for because um, just a month ago, uh, Secretary Pompeo said that, the, and I quote, the Saudis have been great partners in working alongside of us on curbing Iran, and we need to make sure that we're mindful of that. So when you say make the Saudis pay a price, what is the right price to, to make them pay? You know, I'm so tired of Americans having to apologize <laughs> For America, it's high time we started apologizing for despotic tyrannies like Saudi Arabia. I totally reject Pompeo's quote, and I, um, I cannot go along with that. Um, I think that um, Saudi Arabia is curbing Iran because it's in Saudi Arabia's interest. They're not doing us any favors. And it's not our job to curb Iran. Iranian power is curbed plenty in the region without us having to intervene very hard. Um, so I, I totally disagree with him. Even though uh, Iran has threatened many times to acquire nuclear capabilities if they're able to, and we, some would say, have an opportunity to use Saudi Arabia as a like-minded partner to prevent that, you would still jeopardize an Iranian nuclear program in eschewing any ties to the Saudi Arabian prince? Um, this, the Iranian nuclear program is very complicated and the regional politics is very complicated and I think the United States has its hands full doing a number of things at home and in the Pacific and it doesn't need to get wrapped up in either of those fronts. Keep things to a minimum in the Middle East um, but we have a very limited amount of influence in the region and uh, a lot of that could spill back on us the more we get involved. It's actually impressive that um, Russia's involvement in the Syrian civil war hasn't boomeranged back on it much harder. Uh, that was a very risky thing they did, and uh, they had a number of brutal bombing runs and did all sorts of things um, that the United States couldn't and shouldn't do. And so the less we are involved in the Middle East, I think the better off the United States is. So you would say there's no national security threats or concerns or benefits for America? and that you are someone who would pack up the troops and send them home, you would close the embassies? I am sure that there are all sorts of benefits in the Middle East. I just don't think they're worth the cost. I wouldn't close up embassies. Obviously, the United States should do what it can through diplomatic statecraft. But in terms of military statecraft, I think our options are very limited and should stay very limited. Interesting. Well, and you made a strong statement coming out against despotic regimes, which... Good on you, very brave of you to come out and denounce someone. It's very like controversial that. <laughs> in the United States these days. Well, and let's move to somewhere else in the world that's been in the news off and on that also has a similar regime type, North Korea. So North Korea in Asia, the area that you tell us we have to go focus on. Um, also a place that has a less than perfect record on human rights, but for some reason um, the Trump administration has made it central 
I would say, to its legacy. Now here, would you say that it's better off engaging North Korea, or once again, are you saying, nope, not important, we don't have to get involved, stay out? This is a game of unpalatable alternatives. There's really no good choices with North Korea. Talks don't hurt. I mean, I think the Trump administration embarrassed itself by embracing North Korea and then getting stuck with nothing, despite having a love fest um, and claiming that, oh, every, he's a good guy and this is going to work out. And it was all an uh, obvious trick that we fell right into because our president was not very astute. Um, however, I don't think there's a lot of good options. So this was not a hugely costly mistake. And that um, long term, look, I mean, the North Koreans maybe have 5% of the economy that the South Koreans do. Um, this is, they are broadly a problem because of weakness, not because of strength. South Koreans can broadly handle themselves and manage this. They do need the Americans to backstop them at the nuclear level. Um, but broadly, that nothing more than that. You know, the United States can be um, offshore in Japan and uh, be there if we're needed, but we are broadly uh, only needed to facilitate dialogue between the North and South. And obviously China has a big vested interest here. And would you say... And I think this is a question that a lot of people kind of have underlying every time they hear about North Korea. For example, North Korea was just in the news a couple weeks ago because it had, it had been discovered that they hadn't been as truthful to, of their assessments of how many nuclear weapons or programs developing that had as they'd promised or vaguely had promised. And everyone's question usually is, does it matter to us? Are we at risk? I mean, they draw these scary charts where Los Angeles or Chicago or South Bend, Indiana are now inside the, the potential range of a, a, something launched from North Korea. Does that scare you? I mean, should the United States care that North Korea is developing a nuclear weapon? And, and, and if so, would you be willing to do more than just be facilitators if it seemed like we were at risk? Well, certainly it's not a good thing that they can they have missiles that could reach the continental United States or Hawaii. Alaska, these are all bad developments. But in the grand scheme of all the bad things that can happen in the world, this is a fairly low priority with me. Um, you have to think of it in terms of what could North Korea gain by doing that? And the answer is complete devastation. They'd be wiped off the map. So under what circumstances, for what political goals could they possibly trigger that kind of response? And the answer is very limited, if not non-existent um, goals. And so North Korea does what it can to show that it's crazy and maybe it can get what it wants because it's just crazy enough to do stuff. This has broadly not been very credible. We have also tried to signal that we're crazy. Nixon tried it. Trump is trying it. Nobody really buys it. Um, so it's not a good thing, but we do what we can um, to make sure that deterrence holds. And uh, if push comes to shove, that we would win. But no one would really win in this. It would be winning at an unacceptable cost, which is why you have the status quo. So listeners, when they see North Korea inevitably come up in the news again in the next few weeks, months, coming year, that if they followed your advice, they should just think it's a bluff. It's all a bluff. I'm not at risk. North Korea is not, the, 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 the Kim Jong-un-led dynasty is not dumb enough to launch something. We're not dumb enough to launch something. So it's really just headlines. That's it. It's just noise. Well, you can see that people go about their everyday life. South Korea goes about its everyday life all the time. There have been a number of scares for decades. This movie keeps repeating. But accidents happen. So I don't, I mean, everybody knows that all probabilities have a positive chance of happening. And that would be catastrophic. So there's still reasons to be cautious. But again, in the grand scheme of things, we have other fish to fry. And, and before we get to some other hot spots, I'm really curious, what are the other fish to fry that you're thinking of when, when you tell us that 
you know, we should really wind down our activity in the Middle East. We have limited influence there. North Korea is not a big threat. I mean, what are the fish that you're thinking of that we really need to focus on right now? The rise of China is a serious concern, but I think the number one problem with the United States right now is the United States. No one could beat the United States like the United States. We have major problems with political divisions. Our economy maybe needs some reform. Our fiscal system needs some reform. Um, it, it's looking like the United States needs an institutional update. Interesting. So are you the kind of man that says electoral college must go? Do we need ranked choice voting? I mean, what is so important that, that it keeps you up at night more so than North Koreans or, or Saudi Arabian misdeeds? Is, is it income taxes are too high? What is it that bothers you? Um, look, uh, I'm not an American politics scholar, so your guess is as good as mine. I wish we would have a bigger discussion of this rather than everyone jockeying for a position to get their advantage in their party to do better. I think people ought to think more about what's really in all of our best interests and how can we do the national interest long term. Um, to me, that is devolving power from the federal to the state level, and that's increasing accountability for politicians across the board. Um, I find it appalling that Americans do everything they can to avoid paying their taxes. Um, in fact, when the president bragged about not paying taxes, he was not penalized for that. And we have seen that the IRS has been gutted and it's very hard to even hold people basically accountable for paying basic levels of tax. Um, so there's a number of things that are just low-hanging fruit that we, could, we should have that conversation. Um, but that is something that broadly I don't have any expertise in. I just have opinions. Well, it's good that you have opinions because that makes for a much more interesting podcast. And I, and I want to press you a little bit. So, so clearly you seem not a fan of of some aspects of the Trump administration's foreign policy at the moment. And, and the Trump administration has come out and protected the Saudis. You disagree. The Trump administration has made deals with or tried to make deals with North Korea. You disagree. And, and another area um, I want to get to in a second, too, is Venezuela. The president has reportedly considered intervening or at least talking about intervening there. And I'm willing to guess that you would also disagree with in, in intervention there. So I want to move to the next section then of, all right, wise guy, let's put you in charge. So let's, let's put uh, Joseph Parent as a, an influential senator, God forbid, president. Um, is your first act to, to really pull the plug in the Middle East, to really move all the troops into Asia? I mean, what, what is it that, that you think you could do better than the current administration is doing? Well, first, let's, I mean, give people their due. They, you know, we should give the Trump administration credit for the things they're doing right. So let me just single those out right now. And I'm done. Um, they've done nothing well. They have basically not delivered on anything, and it has been embarrassing to watch them flail about in foreign affairs. Um, that said, the world is complicated and difficult, so I, they have my sympathy. It's a tough job that they do, and it's not like if I were in charge that things would be, you know, hugely better. But I think... Bigly better. Big, bigly bigly better. better. So I think, um, look, for me, the long-term problems aren't current readiness. We need to think long-term, not because we're not going to be in a major conflict in the short term, so we need to start acquiring weapons and planning our defenses accordingly. And that entails getting rid of some very expensive weapon systems, maybe moving away from aircraft carriers or having so many aircraft carriers, um, fewer land forces, right? We have this major army, standing army, which is exactly what the founding fathers warned us against. 
Um, we should focus on small mobile units. We should disproportionately reward the Army and sorry, the Air Force and the Navy because they're much more rapid, high capital things. We should go with what we're good at. Um, I think it is an embarrassment that the United States um, doesn't double down on what it's best at, which is innovation, right? Why aren't we spending more on research or research and development? We do a pretty good job in that relative to other countries, but we could do much better. We have the capacity to expand that much better. Um, and a number of other things at home that the United States has not been taking care of, such as education and healthcare. Well, and I want to I probe that a little bit because, and we'll come back to the, the current news cycle in a moment, but this is something that, I, that I've heard you and, and other scholars who are petitioning for us to focus internally, to focus internally. And, and I, I feel for, for some senators who, who have said to me in confidence that they say, listen, it's not as easy as it looks. And if you want to be the first one to stand up and say, we need to reform Social Security or we need to cut this uh, beloved government program, we need to tax these folks more, um, they quickly lose their jobs. And so do you ever feel that academia has a very different view of what's realistic than and then perhaps the policymaking world actually does? I mean, I don't want to accuse you of being in an ivory tower, but, but do these thoughts for folks like you who spend all day thinking about this, do you have those thoughts of, well, if I was a politician, I would just do this? I mean, is it, is it really that easy? Are no, we, we weak-willed as politicians? Well, certainly there's some of that, but politicians are politicians because they get elected. That's what they're good at. Um, but that is different than serving the country, right? So there's the politics-policy distinction. And you need good policies to solve actual problems, but you need politicians to implement them, and that there's going to be a separation between those two things. So if it's all politics, then it's just self-serving interest groups, and that doesn't get us where we want to go. If it's all policy, then it doesn't go anywhere because you have nobody to implement it. So there's sort of the line between a theoretical physicist and an engineer. Um, they're both necessary. They do different things. And thank heavens that universities exist and this country has many strong ones because you have people who are buffered from popular pressures saying, no, 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 no. If you do that, you're not going to get the outcome that you want. And you need people to say repeatedly, like, you're having trouble for these reasons. And when you can get a constituency together that could get us from A to B, you might have better results. Um, so I feel it's incumbent upon um, people who are lucky enough to be professors to do their social duty to say, look, I'm, I'm as imperfect as anybody, but I'm an expert in this. I've studied a bunch of cases of this, and I can tell you that when people tend to do what you're doing, they don't get the outcome you, you say you're going for. Um, because a lot of what passes for thought in the public sphere is often debunked theories that people think they're being practical or think they're being smart, and they're really you know, looking at 50-year-old social science that was never vindicated and was junked a while ago. Trickle-down economics is the most famous, but there's lots of things. I mean, Paul McDonald and I have been working for some time to try and correct the idea that power transitions are very dangerous. The data just isn't there. But if you want to cherry-pick cases or you want to reverse engineer an outcome that you think is likely, you're going to find out that it's true. Now, and according to your literature, such as Twilight of the Titans, when do the folks back home realize that change is necessary? Because we talk about, well, the politicians need to do this, the academics need to do this, but maybe, it, maybe it's the, the folks that vote, all the, the average day common Americans that need to press for changes. So when, according to your book, does a power transition, I mean, what signs or what events cause the general population to say, okay, I get what's going on, 
And even though it's going to be tough, I'm a fan of this kind of restructuring. I mean, what, where is that break-even moment? And are we close to that yet? Are we, is that far away for us? Um, I'm sure there are a number of break-even moments. What you would really want to look at is sort of national wealth. When another society's national wealth eclipses yours, that's a very bad thing. China's a fair way away from doing that to the United States. But we're now at the point where China's purchasing power parity GDP, which is an income measure, is above ours. Um, and there's all sorts of problems with GDP, so take that with an asterisk. But that's, we're broadly at that point. Um, and that's the, the studies we look at in the book, is how many other countries have been in that position? How do they behave? Um, and we were surprised to find that if you fall from number one to number two, it's actually not all that different than falling from number two to number three or number three to number four. That we thought hegemonic transitions would be really different. There's just, we couldn't find the data for that. There wasn't a good evidence to support that position. Um, but what we did find was not that people in 1870 looked at the GDP figures one morning and got out of bed and said, Eureka, we ought, we ought, there ought to be a law. What they found was, or what we found was that um, they got the sense that things weren't the same because they failed in things that they used to be good at. You know, as crises were, were ending less favorably for them, that they used to be able to do something in a particular way, and then they tried to do it, and it didn't work anymore, and they had to reconfigure what they did. And they realized that their capabilities, they're basically, they were, they were trying to take a smaller blanket to cover a larger area than they were used to. And so they had to cut their coat with their cloth and do, do, things, do things differently. And, and what would you say to someone who really presses you on it and says, you know, you talk a lot about China, you talk a lot about China, China's a big threat, China this, China that. I mean, we're talking about a country that still has broad swaths of it that live in absolute poverty and an extremely oppressive one-party government that's juggling a huge population ticking time bomb. What do you say to the people who say, China's not that scary to us, so why do you keep beating this dead horse, or maybe this dead panda of, China's a problem, China's a problem, China's a problem. I mean, should we really be afraid of China? How many, how many deaths did, did China cause last year? How many Americans died because of China? How many Americans will die next year because of China? It, how do you defend that China's so important we need to go about reforming and changing and retrenching when we haven't actually seen any physical threats from China on the homeland yet? Okay, well, I don't wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat about China. Um, I do think China is going to be the largest challenge that American foreign policy faces, but I think the United States has a great hand to play with its allies in the region. Um, Japan, obviously, is already very close to us, but India inclines towards us, and you could deal with China on fairly reasonable terms given that they have no friends and we have a bunch of friends and they are domestically not very attractive. Their cultural poll is not very good. Um, however, they are becoming increasingly provocative in the South China Sea. Um, in the East China Sea, we have a major problem with Taiwan that could potentially happen, that hasn't happened. Um, and the United States needs to be in a position down the road that if Chinese intentions change, we can handle it. We have a plan with branches and we have the resources and assets in, in the correct places to be able to deal from a position of strength. And that's, that's an interesting hypothetical you bring up of Taiwan, because this is an island we're talking about which is thousands of miles away from, from the nearest bit of the American homeland. Suppose that China uh, really calls her bluff on it and physically attempts to exert control over Taiwan. According to your philosophy, is Taiwan something worth shedding American treasure or blood over? Uh, I think this is above my pay grade, so I think Americans ought to have that debate. As far as I know, we've had calculated ambiguity on this for some time. 
My hunch is most Americans would support it, especially if it led to a nuclear threat from China, which is many times larger than what North Korea could muster. Um, but the United States obviously has an interest in sticking up for countries it has backed in the past and a gradual move towards some firm position on Taiwan would probably be in America's long-term interest. And the reason I bring it up is because um, I don't want to caricature your views as isolationism, but it does seem like there are some certain circumstances where you'd say pull back and others where you would say invest. And so is it fair to say that line is Asian, that, that anything in Asia is what we need to invest in? Or is there a certain set of circumstances around the world that you're looking at that, that tells you where less America's resources, blood, time, talent, treasure is needed? Or is it something that it's based on priorities? How do you shape and, and prioritize? And how should our listeners prioritize when they read in the news? Oh, yeah, that's not important. That should be important. This area is more important to us. Is it just things that are related to China? No. Well, look, I think the, the general way to look at this is the way that George Kennan looked at this at the end of World War II, is what areas of the world, if somebody else controlled them, could drastically shift the distribution of power? So places like India and Japan qualify, and places like Taiwan do not. China will grow. I mean, no one knows, right? They have a number of problems to growth. But probably if China continues to grow, they will put up significant numbers and get much bigger. Um, but if they, got, if they suddenly had Taiwan tomorrow as part of China, that doesn't fundamentally change the picture. And so what are you, what are you willing to fight and die for? Well, most Americans are very clear that they wish we had less international involvement. They like liberal international order when they don't have to pay for it. But if you ask them to pay for it, the answer is hell no. Um, so if the American people don't want to pay for it, then this is a democracy. And you should be very careful about writing checks that someone could cash at some point. Uh, so if it were up to me, I think that Taiwan should be able to be neutral between the United States and China. Um, and I think the Chinese would have a major problem uh, invading the island if they wanted to for the foreseeable future. Um, but I think this is something that Americans ought to be talking about. Where do you want commitments around the world? How important is the Ukraine to you? What about the Baltics? How about Poland? Um, so I don't think that the tanks are going to roll tomorrow, but the tanks could roll in the future, and we should have plans for that. Uh, interesting, because I think when you say tanks roll, I think a lot of Americans have kind of discounted the notion of war in their head because it's been... How many decades since we fought a world war? That's in the history textbooks. Vietnam happened in some jungle far away, except for the veterans who were actually there. I mean, it seems like the idea of a large global conflict has kind of grown theoretical or even unimaginable for a lot of folks. So would you say that in our lifetime, conflict is something that's necessary? Should, should people read the news with a, a little thing in their back of the head saying, it's possible that 1939 happens again? Or can we rest assured that China's too far away from us. War is never really likely. It's, it's improbable. Uh, I think you shouldn't pay attention to what people say. You should pay attention to what people do. And in this case, particularly states, right? There are states that don't have militaries. Costa Rica is a famous one. Most states still have significant militaries. Now, defense spending may not be as high or as low as many people want, but people are still, states are still spending a large chunk of their income on defense, and it's not just for economic reasons. They are hedging against the possibility of armed conflict. And I think that tells you something. The people with the largest incentive to get it right are concerned. Um, so I do think that war is something that could happen down the line. I don't think it's likely to happen tomorrow. Um, 
But because states are big super tankers that are hard to turn around, you have to be largely prepared for what could happen five and 10 years from now. You have to get that ball rolling. So I think states are doing what is largely prudent. And I think that's something that uh, voters should accept, or at least, you know, if they want to have the discussion about it, then push back against that notion. But there's a lot of people looking at the same things, doing similar actions. And, and I, I see that you often uh, wrap yourself in the flag of public support when you share your opinions here, that, that voters would back you up, that, that voters should be consulted. Are you saying that, that you trust the average American voter to make complex foreign policy decisions and that, that the group of people who sometimes are more obsessed with America's Got Talent than they are with following the news cycle can make the distinction of Pakistan is not our friend, but Taiwan is, and in these circumstances, I would tell my congressman to do this. Is that plausible? Should we outsource more of our foreign policy decisions to the electorate, which has varying levels of experience and education? That's certainly an unpopular position right now. Democracy is taking a beating all around the world these days. Um, but I'm happy to go to the map for democracy, and I'm happy to say that um, publics get a lot right. I think elites get a lot right, but they also get a lot wrong, and so do publics. I mean, what's great about our democracy is it's mixed and includes elements of kingly and aristocratic and democratic sentiments, and they do things, they all do different things better than the other. And I think, um, like, how much blood and treasure should you sacrifice should be left up to the electorate. The elites can make a case for what they think is a good idea, but fundamentally it's the people's money and it's the people's lives, and they should decide. Um, so things like that, yes. About the details and the strategies and those other things, I think the elites are in a better position. If they don't deliver the goods, they should be fired. Now, how would you respond to someone who points out that you are a big fan of giving the common man reins, saying, listen, elect who you want to do foreign policy. I trust you. But uh, the man that was elected just a couple of years ago, you had nothing good to say about uh, the Trump administration's foreign policy. So are you criticizing the electorate for, for electing Trump? Are you saying that I trust the electorate in theory, but when it's Trump that got elected, well, now I don't trust American democracy as much? Well, I mean, you can't say that people are free to do whatever they want as long as it's what you want them to do. People are free to do whatever. There's a democracy. They're free to make their minds and vote for who they want. Um, to be clear, I mean, we've seen the best and the brightest go into Vietnam. Um, it's not like the Kennedy administration, the Johnson administration was short of elites. Um, it's not like the elites in the George W. Bush administration made particularly good calls. Um, there's obviously a lot of dispute, in not only in the electorate broadly, but among elites about what the proper policies are. And that's elections have consequences. That's why they're there. You make the case and both masses and elites make mistakes and time will tell. So maybe I'm wrong and the Trump administration is secretly savvy and not ignorant and impulsive. Um, maybe the reverse. People can judge for themselves as the results become known. And that's something I want to conclude on of another election is always coming, another one's coming, another one's coming. And so as the 2020 presidential election approaches on, on the horizon, the campaign started the day after the 2018 midterms, what do you think are the, the foreign policy issues that will start to develop? Will it be an obsession with China? Will, it, will, will China get its due as an issue that, that deserves more talking about? I mean, what are the issues that our listeners should be aware of or can anticipate showing up in the next elections? Well, my sense is that China is continuing to heat up because China is continuing to grow. That's just a function of their power. And not, not much we can do will change that. 
obviously, I think it's probably a good thing for us to talk more about that. But in terms of other foreign policy things, it's been interesting to me how much um, people use foreign policy to posture for domestic political reasons. So a lot of the Trump defense bill were things that were, you know, even the military was kind of puzzled. Like, we want money, but you say you want us to do X, and then you give us money and ask us to do Y. These are two separate things. But all it was was, you know, we want to look tough. We want, we want the symbols of hardware. We don't actually want to be able to do the things that we say we're supposed to be doing. Um, so I think people should be aware that there's a lot of what appears to be posturing. And as usual, they should do their own homework, get their fingernails dirty, and go see for themselves. You know, read the conflicting opinions about, are these foreign policy decisions wise? What are the reasons? What are the evidence? And just check for themselves. Well, speaking of wise opinions, Professor, we are very grateful for having yours here today. And on behalf of the Notre Dame International Security Center, I want to thank you and our listeners for joining us for another edition of our Students Talk Security podcast. And you can look forward to more of our publications on these many pertinent issues in the very near future. Thank you, Professor. Thank you, Andrew. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.